bet you haven't sang a lot of those songs for a long time. That's a, it's like singing poems, isn't it? Poetry. I, I should have tried that with Beowulf in high school, I mean in, in college, and seen if that helped me understand it a little bit better, but uh, I'm sure it wouldn't have. I was lost. Uh, my name is Gary, and I'm filling in uh, probably once a month for Pastor D, and uh, really glad to have the opportunity to do that, but I'm also glad to be able to make it so that D can go do what he wants to do certain times, and there's probably, probably nothing stops him from doing that anyway, but he, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to fill in in that way. We, last month we started looking at the book of 2 Timothy, and so if you would turn there with me to the book of 2 Timothy, um, if not, look it up on your phone. I, there's just something really good about looking at Scripture. It, there, I used to have a mentor who would encourage us to focus our beady little spiritual eyes on Scripture, and I, I think it's important to do that. We saw last time that Paul wrote this little letter to Timothy. It was a personal letter. It was a, a powerful letter. It was rather pithy with everything that would, was contained in it, and it was uh, written with passion by a man who was dying to a young man who might be struggling. And it was the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and therefore, we find some very personal things. We find some very uh, tender things in this book and things that can help us identify uh, how to walk in the days that we're facing. We're, we're facing days that are not that far different from what Timothy and Paul were living in at that point in time. And we're going to, we're going to need to know what Paul told Timothy in the days ahead. And so that's why I chose to, when I get a chance to speak, to look at this little book. Uh, we began last time, uh, chapter one's entitled, Be Stirred in, in God's Gift. And we began looking uh, at a, a word of introduction. Let's look at verses one and two again. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we saw by way of, this is a word of introduction, and we saw last time that in this introduction he mentions three people and three words. The three people he mentions, he tells us that this book was authored by Paul the aged one. It was addressed to Timothy the younger one, and it was about Christ the eternal one. And 2 Timothy is indeed a book for our day. We need its message, and, and we need to have a sense of the authority that this book has because it was authored by the Apostle Paul, and it was about the one who is the object and the centerpiece of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to focus on Christ the eternal one. Sometimes I get a little frustrated with the things that are going on in this world right now. I'm sure none of you do. But um, it must just be a sin problem in my life. But I find myself getting worked up. And then all of a sudden, I realize that, you know, there's this eternal person that's present in my life that has it all in his control. And I don't have to worry about it because 
No one is going to do anything that he doesn't want done. And I can trust him in that. And so it's a, it's a great little book. Three people, Paul the aged one, Timothy the younger one, Jesus Christ the eternal one. And there are three words that we didn't get to last week in that passage. It's grace, mercy, and peace. And uh, when writing the letters, Paul wrote mostly letters to the churches. But he wrote three specific letters to pastors. The book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The standard greeting, the standard greeting for uh, the letters to the churches was grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. But when writing to Timothy both times and Titus, he adds mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. And I think he does that for a specific reason to show that, that ministers need more mercy than other people do. Why would that be? Whoa, sounds like I'm in a pickle jar. In James, it's on the screen, and we can get it up there, 3-1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We who teach will be judged more strictly. That's why teachers and ministers need more mercy because they're putting themselves in a place of stricter judgment. C.H. Spurgeon used this verse along with 1 Timothy 1-2 and Titus 1-4 to show that ministers need more mercy than others do. And I like what he writes about himself. Let me share that quote with you. He says, did you ever notice this one thing about Christian ministers? That they need even more mercy than other people? Although everybody needs mercy, ministers need it more than anybody else, and so we do, for if we are not faithful, we shall be greater sinners even than our hearers, and it needs much grace for us always to be faithful, and much mercy will be required to cover our shortcomings. So I shall take those three things to myself, grace, mercy, and peace. You may have the two, grace and peace, But I need mercy more than any of you. This is Spurgeon speaking here. I need mercy more than any of you, so I take it from my Lord's loving hand, and I will trust and not be afraid, despite all my shortcomings and feebleness and blunders and mistakes in the course of my whole ministry. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So I was thinking, isn't mercy a great thing that we could give as a congregation, as brothers and sisters, to Mike and Dee? Couldn't we extend that to them in great measure? Wouldn't that be a wonderful gift for them? Extend the mercy? Yes, lots of it. We tend to think that they're bold, confident men, and they are in the Lord. But in the quiet, alone moments, I can guarantee you that they have need of the feeling that they have mercy from those they're ministering to. Grace is the... uh, Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is God giving me what I do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding what I do deserve. Now, so when we understand that, it's God's withholding what we do deserve. We deserve punishment for our sins. We deserve justice from the hand of God because we sinned against him. We deserve a lot of things, but he withholds that in his mercy. 
And so when we extend mercy to other people, we withhold what might be seem like a legitimate thing to do to them. So grace is God giving me what I do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding what I do deserve. And peace is knowing whatever happens is God's will. That's what I want more than anything else right now during these days is peace. Knowing that whatever happens is according to the will of God. And we can rest in that because he's already extended grace to us to save us. He's extended mercy to us to preserve us. And he will run things the way he wants them run. I've also, grace is for the worthless. And mercy is for the helpless. And peace is for the restless. Sometimes you get so worked up and, and God says, peace be still to the storms that are raging around you. Sometimes uh, we don't feel like we can do anything and God extends his mercy because we're so helpless. He does it for us. And grace is for the worthless. Of course we're worthless. We can't do anything to merit salvation or love, the love of Christ, but only by him dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sins, he, he has made the worthless worth the death of his son. Grace is for the worthless, mercy for the helpless, peace for the restless. Grace is needed for every service. Everything we do, we need grace. Mercy is needed for every failure. And I use up a lot of mercy from God because I fail a lot. Peace is needed for every circumstance. And so remember, Second uh, Timothy was writing, uh, was written to the child of God. First Timothy, Paul wrote to the church of God. Second Timothy, he wrote to the child of God. And that's why Paul adds mercy to the greeting. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. James 2, 13 says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's why God wants us to understand so much as, child, as children of God that mercy is extended to us, that we desperately need mercy. Because mercy rounds out the child of God. Mercy is something personal to be experienced and then extended to others. In Matthew 5, 7 says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And if, so if we err, I hope we can err on the side of mercy. If we're, if we're needing to be discerning in a certain area, that we can err on the side of mercy rather than erring on the side of a, a judgmental spirit. Because if we err on the side of mercy, According to the Beatitudes there, blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Even, even if we err on the side of mercy, God's going to pour out more and more mercy to us. But if we err on the side of a judgmental spirit, you know, Scripture says that by the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. And I don't want to be judged by having a judgmental spirit. I want to be judged by being merciful like my Savior was to me. Then after this word of introduction... In verses 3 through 5, Paul gives a word of appreciation. He says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience 
As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded lives in you also. He says, I constantly remember. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. That's, that's praying without ceasing. That is this idea of that all the time Paul's mind was running things through by past God's throne, and, and if he had known us, each of our names would be coming before the throne. And Pastor D and Mike, both of them pray for all of us by name, constantly remembering us before the throne of grace. And it's not uncommon for Paul to speak like this. In Ephesians 1.16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. So he says, I've not stopped. I keep asking. I've not stopped. I keep asking. And it, this was Paul's pattern of life and ministry. And Timothy could be assured that, you know what, Paul's, Paul's lifting me before the throne all the time. And so I, I think for us to realize that if someone like the Apostle Paul, someone like the pastors in our church, can be praying for us all the time by name, they're pretty serious about shepherding like God wants them to shepherd. And we can be really sure that God hears our names come up before his throne. In Galatians 4.19, Paul writes, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The pains of childbirth. Praying is not an easy thing. Praying that Christ is formed in one of our dear friends or our family or our children or our spouse, that's, that's hard, that's labor. And yet Paul did that. He finds himself once again in the pains of childbirth, laboring in prayer for them. I wrote in the margin of my Bible along the, the word of thanksgiving there that the key to a life of victory is continual thanksgiving and gratefulness. And I think it's interesting that we would come to these three verses the day before Thanksgiving. And, and uh, when we lose a spirit of gratefulness, when we lose a spirit of Thanksgiving, then we become critical complainers about everything. And I don't know many of you very well. I know quite a few of you, but I... If you're a whiner, I don't like to be around you. I like people who are not complainers. They're campaigners for Christ. I don't want, I have enough of that in my spirit without some of you feeding that too. And so I, I, I wanna know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's in control and we're not complaining about what we're doing. And, and a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of gratefulness is how we contradict a complaining, whining spirit. So every time you think of something to complain about, could I challenge you to stop 
right in your tracks, because you know, I realize the moment I start complaining, it's almost like I speak in a different language, but you can tell, and when I start complaining, to stop and thank God for the very thing I'm complaining about. Turn that spirit of complaint to a spirit of gratefulness, and you will be blessed. Well, Paul was grateful for Timothy in three areas. He, in, in verse 4, he says, Timothy, thanks for your fellowship. Thank you for your fellowship. Do you have people that, in your life that you just love to be with? People that, uh, we need those kind of people in our lives. There are times we'll get caught in situations where we have to be around people we don't enjoy all that much. But for the greatest amount of your time, you should spend it with people that you just love to be with because of the fellowship that you have in Christ, because of the joy and how they encourage you to walk with Jesus, how they, they make your life more heavenward more Christ-like because you've been with them. And we need to be that kind of person to other people. He's, he says, I, I long for you, Timothy. And in verse 4, he says, recalling your tears, I long to see you. Literally, I greatly, some translations say, greatly desiring to see you. And it's a verb that is, is just denoting this intense longing or desire for something. And later in the letter, in, in chapter uh, four and towards the end there of the chapter, he, he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Try to get here before winter. Please come, Timothy. Bring my cloak. I'm going to be freezing this winter in this rock dungeon. Pre please bring my cloak. But if you can't bring my cloak, at least bring the parchments, my handwritten copies of Scripture that I left behind. And, and, and so Paul longed for Timothy to get there. In verse 4, he also says, being mindful of your tears. And we, last time we talked about what those tears probably were, what that he was referring to. It was when Paul was ripped away from Timothy as, as Timothy and Paul were walking down the street at Troas, and the Roman guards came and grabbed Paul and ripped him away. And he, the, Timothy was left holding the scrolls in, his, in Paul's cloak and Paul could look back and see the tears streaming down Timothy's cheeks when his dear mentor Paul was ripped away from him by soldiers of the wicked Emperor Nero. You always hear people say, the Apostle Paul, he was just abrasive. I don't want to be like Paul. He was abrasive. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Paul was not abrasive. He was abrasive to those who taught false doctrine. He was abrasive to those who deserved to have some rebuke, but people didn't want Paul to leave them. People loved Paul. They loved to have him in their presence. Paul had a similar bond with the elders in Ephesus that he had with Timothy. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, we have this touching scene uh, when Paul was telling him he wouldn't see him anymore. He was heading to Jerusalem, and then from there, they, they probably would never see him anymore. And he says he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. 
Is that the description of an abrasive man? I don't think so. And although Paul, uh, Paul definitely realized he may not ever see Timothy again, he still greatly desired to see him one more time, at least one more time. How many times do you want to see the dearest person on earth to you before they die? Always just one more time. I don't know how many times I have sat with people who've lost a loved one, and they, what do they say? If I could just see them one more time. And all of us probably in this room have that same kind of scenario where we, we can think of someone, I wish I could have just seen them one more time. I'd give anything to see them one more time. Isn't that incredible? Well, that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. I, I would just love to see you one more time. When you know someone really loves you, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It's so important that we communicate to others that, that we love, how important they are to us before they die. I've been on this quest the last period of time, I don't know, several years now, but how many services, memorial services do we go to? And we listen to all these wonderful things said about these people. And I, I ask myself, what would it have done for this person if they'd heard all these things before they died? And so now I'm trying to communicate with people more. I, I know they're, even before there's any kind of terminal prognosis whatsoever, I still try to tell people how much I appreciate them, how, much, how miserable life would be without them around. And that's what Paul was so grateful for. Thanks for your fellowship. And then he, he tells Timothy, thanks for your faith. Thanks for your faith. In the first part of verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Your sincere faith. Genuine faith. It's a compound word that means unhypocritical faith. I'm so thrilled with your unhypocritical faith, Timothy. It's, it just blesses my heart. And uh, in his previous letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere, unhypocritical faith. In his second letter, in his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul used the same term to describe his genuine love in 2 Corinthians 6, 6. We have proved ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, our sincere that's unhypocritical love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Peter used it in his admonition to all the believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In 1 Peter 1, he says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love, unhypocritical love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And James, when he was talking about what wisdom looked like, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, The wisdom from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. That's the word sincere. Unhypocritical faith, wisdom. Now, probably before you've all heard where that word, how that word sincere was used in the, Old Test in the New Testament times. They didn't have uh, kitchen stores and 
places you go, go buy all this expensive pots and pans, they had pottery. And they would be set up in the market. And people would make these pots for all different kinds of uses. Paul talked about them. Some are made for noble uses, some are made for ignoble uses. Some are spittoons, and some are something you'd make a pot of beans in. It's just the way it was. Well, um, the, what, what would, how would I describe those potters? The, the crooked potters, they would get pots that were less than perfect. They might have a crack running all the way through them, but they would melt wax, and they would cover up the cracks. And so then they would sell them as good pots. And as soon as you put them on the fire, the wax melted, the pots would crack. It was all there was, and the pot would break. And you'd been taken. You'd paid pretty good money for an insincere pot. And so when that pottery was set out for sale, some of the market, some of the dealers would write beneath the ones that were perfect, sincere. And it meant without wax. There's nothing hiding the cracks. And, and that's a great picture of what the word sincere should mean in our lives. We've all got cracks, but we don't have to hide them. I'm the best crack pot you've ever seen. And, and, but we don't have to hide them. When we try to put wax over those cracks is when we are being fake and not sincere. What Paul saw in Timothy was sincerity all the way through his life. I thank God for your sincere faith. Paul David Tripp, in his devotional New Morning Mercies on October 5th, nails this down. He says, faith in God is more than believing the right things. It's living the right way because you believe the right things. The belief of the heart and mind is an essential ingredient of faith, but it does not summarize all that faith is. True biblical faith is always something you that you live. If your faith does not reshape your life, it's not true faith. It's not true faith. So to say something and then not live it out is hypocritical faith. It's not genuine. And Paul was praising Timothy for the things he believed and the way he lived. And he didn't pretend to, to believe one thing and live another way. What you saw with Timothy is what you got. And those are the kind of people I love to be around. What you see is what you get. I don't have to worry about anything being hidden. And it brings a freedom to the fellowship in the church, if that's that way. So um, Paul says, thank you, Timothy, for your fellowship. Thank you for your, fam your faith. And I want to thank you, too, for your family. Your family's been important to me. In the end of verse 5, he says, um, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Paul was grateful for the godly heritage he had, that Timothy had, through his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. He realized that this genuine faith that he was seeing in Timothy had been modeled to him by his family. You know, Timothy came from a city called Lystra, and 
Paul visited there on his first missionary journey. He went to Lystra. Lystra probably wasn't the highest on Paul's list of memories. Because when he was at Lystra, they came into town and they, there was a guy who'd been crippled from birth and, and Paul healed him. And Barnabas was with him. And do you remember this story? All the people tried to make them Greek gods and they wanted to sacrifice a bull to them and Paul could barely get them stopped. And the other people in town who were jealous of the attention that Paul was getting stirred the people up against Paul and Barnabas. And they drugged Paul out of town and they stoned him and left him for dead. That was his first trip to Lystra. You know, I would probably would have marked that off my future travel plans. But he came back a second time. And the second time is when he discovered Timothy. Oh my goodness. And Timothy, he, just, he got to know Lois and Eunice and, and, and Timothy. And, and I, I don't think Timothy's father was a believer. He said he, he, wasn't a, he was a Greek. He wasn't, I don't know much about him. I wish I knew more. But so Paul ended up leaving Lystra and taking Timothy with him. And that began their long mentor relationship until Timothy had been so grounded by the Apostle Paul that he was now pastoring the church at Ephesus. And it's, Paul says, I just want to thank you, Timothy. I, I don't know if there, either his mother or grandmother led him to the faith or grounded him in the faith or both. But I think God wants to use parents and grandparents in a mighty way in our day because there's less and less influence for Christ. And grandparents and parents who will take the time to ground their grandchildren in the faith ground their children in the faith. It's never be too busy to talk about Jesus or to read the Bible with your kids because that can get them through. That can get them through. It's such a wonderfully encouraging verse for mothers and grandmothers. I know you guys live, I've been watching the grandmother I know, my wife today, getting ready for Thanksgiving. What a thankless job. Working to the bone for two days. To get ready for one feast where everybody comes in and swoops in and woof, it's gone. But it's an act of love. And it can be a thankless job, but what about later on if someone says, I recall your mother Lo your grandmother, your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois, and how they built into your life. What a joy that would be. Your influence is so crucial. My gram was the only Christian in our family uh, growing up, and, and, and she took me to Sunday school once in a while, not a lot, but once in a while, and I'd go. I usually had other plans. Uh, she told me about Jesus. She bought me a Bible every Christmas. I've got lots of Bibles from my grandmother. And when I finally came to Christ, oh, was she thrilled. You, I, you could never... You could never replicate that face or the joy that she had in her life when I told her I'd come to Christ. And then she bought me another Bible. I think she prayed me into the kingdom. I think her prayers, ceaseless prayers, were influential. I love that. And so Paul was really grateful that Timothy came from a family heritage who loved Jesus. And uh, John Quincy Adams said, all that I am, my mother made me. 
Abraham Lincoln said, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody said, all that I have ever accomplished in life, I owe to my mother. And I'm sure that's true for many of us. This, my case, it was my grandmother. But someplace in that heritage, and someplace down the line from you, people can say that about you. There were four scholars, and they were arguing over which translation of the Bible was best. And one of them said, well, I, I prefer the King James Version because of its beauty and its eloquent Old English. And, and a second one said I, he preferred the New American Standard because it was such a literal, almost wooden translation, but it led you from truth to truth to truth to truth, and you could trust it. And another one said he preferred the New Living Translation because of its dynamic equivalent phrases that made the Bible come to life. And the fourth one was quiet for a while, and they were looking at him, waiting for him to respond. And finally, he said, I personally prefer my mother's translation. When the other scholars chuckled, he responded, yes, she translated it. She translated it. She translated each page of the Bible into life, and it's the most tra convincing translation I ever saw. So whether we're filling the role of a father mentor like Paul and Timothy, or the role of a mother, grandmother to children underneath you, our influence is important and our scope is unlimited because you never know when you're going to be one who influences someone who affects the world like Timothy did. It might just be in the lives of your own children that you're working, and you know what? That's enough because God has given them to you. God's designed you as a believer, though, to fill that role in somebody's life. And if you look around, if you don't have anyone in a, a mentor relationship role underneath you that you're influencing, if you look around carefully and every day ask God to show you, he will do it. He really will. Then Timothy jumps into a word of exhortation in verses 6 through 18, and, and uh we're, not this time, we're not going to cover, there's five exhortations, but next time we're going to cover those five exhortations. And I find it really interesting and instructive that the words of appreciation came before the words of exhortation or encouragement. They came before that. Paul voices his appreciation for fellowship and faith and family before he ever gets to the point of encouraging Timothy about some things he should do. If you want to be an effective exhorter, you must first of all learn how to appreciate others. Exhortation without appreciation is harsh and can limit the response to godly exhortation. I know people who are constantly exhorting people to do the right things, believe the right way, do the right things in the church or whatever else. But because there's never been any appreciation before that, their words are viewed as harsh. Exhortation is valuable, but it should be balanced and prepared by appreciation. They say when you're raising a child that for every exhortation or encouragement or correction, you should have about 15 to 20 words of appreciation an affirmation. 
Timothy was a great young leader. And he was a man that was just like Paul in many ways, many ways, yet even the best among us, even a Timothy needs exhorting from time to time. So if we think we're above exhortation, we're probably most all the way to the point of being useless. We can always use exhortation and encouragement. I've had people encourage me in, in ways that were gentle and other ways that were kind of deceptive. I, you know, I, I kind of willingly say, yeah, I'd like to get hung by a new rope. You know, I mean, you have just different, there are different ways. And if we're open to encouragement from others, if we're open to exhortation from others, we will, the, the limits of the kingdom of God are broad for us. Timothy needed encouragement from time to time, just like the rest of us. He was sickly. He was sickly. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul told him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and frequent infirmities. Timothy was timid at times. He was timid at times. In 1 Corinthians 16, 10, when Timothy comes, he, he wrote to the, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. He's doing the Lord's work just as I am. He, did he know something about Timothy? I think so. He knew that Timothy could probably be a little bit timid and, and easily intimidated. And so, Timothy the intimidated. How many of us are like that? Some of you have this wonderful gift that you... You portray a lot of confidence, and, and you seem like you can walk into any situation, and you're just bold and joyful, and you can handle it. Um, others of us are like Timothy, and we, we're not too sure of ourselves, and you say, God, what are you asking me to do? Why am I in this situation? I don't want to be in this situation. I didn't volunteer for this. I'm going to cry. And, but that's how Timothy might have been. He was timid at times. But Paul prepared the way. Don't intimidate my dear son, Timothy. He was young. He was not only timid, but he was young for the high level of responsibility that he had. And he was facing hard things in the church, trying things from the culture that he lived in. Sounds just like us today, doesn't it? We're facing trying things. He, he just simply needed the exhortation to press on. And Timothy wasn't perfect. None of us are. I, I used to be a, a really big sports fan. I, I kind of quit watching sports a year and a half ago or so when everything became so political, and I just didn't want it in my life whatsoever. But one of my favorite things used to be to watch the Olympics. I... I love watching the Olympics, the, the national pride that used to be there. I love watching uh, the competition and the camaraderie, even between athletes from different countries. But my favorite thing, my favorite thing were the short vignettes in between the events where they would talk about different athletes and show their family life and how they got to where they were and some of the things that they were doing. I used to just, oh, uh, you know, I could watch the rest 
out of the corner of my eye, but when that happened, I, I just zoned in. But I don't know if you remember this or not, but back in 1992, the Olympics were in Barcelona, Spain. And, you know, the, the Summer Olympics are the ones where you have a lot of track and field events and other things. Well, there was an athlete from Great Britain, and his name was Derek Redmond. And Derek Redmond stepped into the blocks into the, in the semifinal of the 400 meter. It's, a, it's not a race, it's a sprint, 400 meters. It's a grueling, grueling race to run. One trip around the track, as hard as you can go. Before the gun sounded, Derek recalled four years ago when he was getting stretched out and ready for that same event four years ago and his Achilles tendon popped a little bit and he had to withdraw from the race. And for four years, he spent different surgeries, getting different surgeries and rehab and retraining and here he was four years later, he'd qualified for the Olympics again uh, for Great Britain. And he was in the blocks of the 400 meter, finally, after all of that. Well, the gun sounded and the sprinters took off and they got about the first 100 yards and then Derek's hamstring tore and he went to the ground. I remember that like, I can picture the scene still because I'm so old and I remember very few things, but that was one of them. And he went to the ground and the, the paramedics came running out and he pushed them away and he got up and he tried to hobble. He was gonna finish his race no matter what. And he began to hobble and then he'd fall and he crawled, clear down that back stretch around the far corner leading into the home stretch. And he was in deep agony. And finally, this guy comes out of the stands, and he has his cap on, one of those Nike caps says, just do it. And he pushes his way past the officials and past the security guards, and he comes out to the track, and he reaches his arm out to Derek, and he puts his arm around Derek's shoulders. Derek accepted the help this time, because this was dad. This was dad. And they made it. He helped Derek the rest of the way to the finish line, and Everybody in the stands by this time had forgot who won the race. They didn't care anymore. They were watching the winner. And the winner was one who had accepted help and encouragement from one who had been a mentor for so many years. Well, it was 1,900 years before that race when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to his son in the faith while he was sitting in this dark Mamertine dungeon waiting the death penalty. Behind them had laid a lot of years of hard work together, planting churches, teaching, settling disputes, organizing congregations, evangelizing Western Asia. And Paul valued Timothy's devotion to the gospel, his hard work, his dependability, and his sincere faith. And he also understood the frailty of a man. And they were going toward the end of Paul's life, he locked arm in arm. And all Paul was trying to do was to encourage this one on, much like Derek Redmond's father. And I think today people limp through life, and there's no one 
who will pull alongside them. Maybe we need to be looking for those who are faltering, those who are struggling but want to move on. And they just need someone to come put their arm around them and help them to the finish line. That's a Paul and Timothy relationship. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the the words in Scripture that help us get a little bit of a vignette into the lives of Paul and Timothy. We we pray that uh, you would help us to have a sense of those who might need encouraging, and you would help us to pull alongside those. It, we might think, oh, we're we're no means, by no means, an encourager, an exhorter, uh, someone who can be a, a great help. But Lord, just to walk with those who need somebody to walk with them, we ask you to show those people to us. In Jesus' name, amen.